Alrighty, folks, so today we are going to go through, in short form, the entire history of American journalism, its perversion, what it was, what it kind of has become. This is sponsored by Birch Gold. Okay, so let's start from the very beginning of the American Republic. So the first thing to understand about American journalism is that the founders did, in fact, prize American journalism, but journalism was largely political pamphleteering. There was no notion of an objective press, like one objective press that was going to just tell you the fact. Everything was politically engaged. All of the early newspapers in the American Republic, and there were many, many newspapers in the American Republic, all of them had titles like the Democrat or like the Republican or like the Federalist. If you look at the early American Republic, a perfect example of sort of a journalist in the early days was a guy named James Callender. So James Callender was a rather famous political pamphleteer of the time. He worked as an independent journalist. What this meant is that he was actually hired by political campaigns to go dig up stuff on the other guy and then print it. He wrote a lot anonymously, and then he became pretty famous because he was at odds with the Federalists. The Federalists, for those who remember their American history, that would have been George Washington, John Adams, Alexander Hamilton. He was very much allied with the radical Republicans like Thomas Jefferson. And so he viciously attacked George Washington and John Adams at the behest of Thomas Jefferson during the 1800 election and Alexander Hamilton. It was the Hamilton expose, really, that made Calendar famous because he exposed the relationship, the sexual relationship, between Alexander Hamilton and a married woman named Maria Reynolds. Now, he had claimed that relationship led to essentially graft between Hamilton and Maria Reynolds' husband. Hamilton claimed, if you've ever seen the musical, that Maria Reynolds, her husband, was essentially blackmailing him. Whatever the story was, it made James Callender quite famous. It also made him pretty notorious. He was actually prosecuted under the Alien Sedition Acts by the Adams administration in 1800, largely because he kept attacking John Adams over and over and over, and he put out pamphlets talking about how the administration was treasonous and all the rest. The worm turns. Thomas Jefferson, who had been his ally and his patron, didn't end up appointing him to a patronage position that he thought that he deserved. And so he then turned his journalistic skills on Jefferson. So he was the first guy who reported publicly that Jefferson had fathered children by his slave, Sally Hemings. So Callender is sort of a seminal figure in journalism in the sense that he actually was really good at ferreting out pretty scandalous material, also really politically driven. There was no notion of objective journalism. He wasn't a guy who was just bringing you the facts. He had an agenda and he brought that agenda to bear. Okay, so fast forward into the early days of the Republic. And what you end up with is the most contentious issues of the day being adjudicated in the press by people who were actual activists. So one great example of this is Elijah Parrish Lovejoy. So Elijah Lovejoy was a famous abolitionist journalist who was actually murdered for being an abolitionist journalist. He had worked at a place called the St. Louis Observer, and then he took the title Observer and he kept applying it to the papers that he ran. He was shot to death by a pro-slavery mob because he located the Observer in Illinois, but like directly across the borders in Alton, Illinois. He located directly across the border from Missouri, which was at the time a slave state. And his press was actually attacked, like his warehouse was attacked by a gun-wielding mob. And he got in a gun battle with the guys outside. And he ended up being shot to death. He was shot five times. And as is typical in that day and age, unfortunately, the members of the mob ended up being acquitted. This is one of the sort of key moments in the abolitionist movement where it became absolutely clear that the battle over slavery was going to be a bloody one. This was not going to be just a political debate. People were going to die in this particular battle. It was kind of a shocking moment, I think, for a, for a lot of people on both sides of the aisle as to how bloody this thing was going to get. Okay, so fast forward all the way to the end of the Civil War, and Horace Greeley is already a, a very prominent figure. So Horace Greeley, who had a magnificent neckbeard, he was the founder and editor of the New York Tribune. 
which was the biggest paper in New York at the time. He was allied with the Republican Party. In fact, he may have actually named it in 1854. He was such a radical Republican that he was more radical than Abraham Lincoln. What people tend to forget about the Civil War era is that Abraham Lincoln was the moderate. There are people in his own party, William Seward, to name one, who was actually expected to win the 1860 nomination, who pretty much argued for abolition right off the bat. Greeley was pushing Lincoln to declare the end of slavery before Lincoln actually wanted to. And he supported the radical Republicans in the aftermath of the Civil War. The radical Republicans were the people who were responsible for the 13th and 14th Amendments. They they really wanted to abolish many things, including segregation. But obviously, after Lincoln was shot, all of that sort of went by the wayside. The radical Republicans did what they could, but they were running into into pretty strong headwinds. He was really disillusioned with Ulysses S. Grant. This is where all the reports about Ulysses S. Grant being kind of a drunk, corrupt president came from were people like Horace Greeley. Now, revisionist history suggests that a lot of that was exaggerated, that Grant was not aware of a lot of the corruption. That's why you've seen, actually, in recent years, Grant's stock as president go up. If you look at if you look at surveys of historians from about 1990, they would rank Grant among the worst presidents, and now he's actually ranked as among the best presidents. Greeley ran, actually, against Grant as what he called himself a liberal Republican, and because the Democrats in the South, right, the, the former slaveholding states, They wanted Grant not to be the president. They supported him in that race. He got his ass kicked. But what he was really, really famous for doing, aside from running the New York Tribune and being involved in politics, is uh, his very famous line, go west, young man, go west and grow up with the country, which became a call for manifest destiny post-Civil War. Everybody should go take advantage of the Homestead Act and they should settle the continent. So again, activism, journalism, kind of one and the same, right? It's all part of the same thing. Okay, then after this, we get the muckraking era. So the muckraking era is essentially reform-minded journalists. It's most famous during the Progressive Era, which is mostly associated with journalism around the turn of the 20th century, the fin de siècle period. But there are, there are some sort of predecessors in this particular era. These are people who, who didn't like graft, they didn't like corruption, and they reported along those lines and sometimes exaggerated those reports, as we'll get to in just a second. It included people like Ida Tarbell, Ida B. Wells. Technically, some of these people are people who actually predate the, the muckraking period. So Ida B. Wells, for example, who reported on corruption in the railroads and Jim Crow, tremendous journalist. She was technically prior to the muckraking period, but she kind of fits within that, that general rubric. Ida Tarbell was considered a muckraker. She's the person who took on Standard Oil and probably led to the breakup of Standard Oil. She, she liked to attack what were called the big trusts. Journalists like Upton Sinclair, who wrote The Jungle, a very famous book about the meatpacking industry, much of which is false. Right, talking about how like people were falling into the meat and then just being ground up into the meat, and so you might be eating Bob when you when you ate your dinner that night. Even Teddy Roosevelt said that that was not it was just crap, but he wanted to push forward the Pure Food and Drug Act, and so he did it anyway. T.R. had said the men with the muck rakes are often indispensable to the well-being of society, but only if they know when to stop raking the muck, which is a very kind of Teddy line, which is I love this stuff, but only as far as it doesn't affect me. In any case, that's where the, the phrase muckraker comes from. Again, there's some predecessors to this. Lincoln Steffens exposed the graft of Tammany Hall and Boss Tweed. You heard about this sort of stuff back in middle school. So there are all these journalists, and, and basically their job is to uncover graft, uncover corruption. Again, very politically driven people. These are people who definitely had an agenda, and they were very much associated with the progressive side of the aisle. The progressive era was all about the idea that there could be expert administration of government that would sort of wipe away the corruption of politics. And so. They, they were very focused on, on this sort of stuff, and they were, in fact, quite partisan. The next thing that happens is yellow journalism. So yellow journalism and muckraking are kind of part of the same general trend. There's no hard line between muckraking journalism and yellow journalism. Yellow journalism is a, is a term that's very often used to sort of describe the journalists we don't like these days. But the division is not quite as, as hard and fast as all of that. So, for example, Joseph Pulitzer, right? You, you 
recognized his name from the Pulitzer Prize, the height of journalism. Well, he was considered a yellow journalist in his time. He purchased the New York World in 1883, made it into a tabloid. He had extremely strong ties to the Democratic Party. The most famous yellow journalist, of course, was William Randolph Hearst, the basis for Citizen Kane. Hearst was one of the richest and most powerful people in the entire country. He tried to run for president. There are a lot of sort of hyperbolic stories about William Randolph Hearst. The most famous story about him probably isn't true. That, that is the story that on the eve of the Spanish-American War, it was unclear whether the United States wanted to go to war with, with Spain over Cuba. And he supposedly telegraphed another person, you furnish the pictures and I'll furnish the war. Probably apocryphal, probably. He was definitely a war hawk. He's somebody who really did not like what he saw in Cuba and used his papers in order to push people in a particular direction. About this time, because it's a reform-minded era, people decide it's time to start professionalizing journalism. Now, you've looked at the history of journalism so far, and you say to yourself, they've done some pretty good work. I mean, they've uncovered some, some real graft, some real corruption, sex scandals, like all this stuff was getting uncovered. And it also happened in sort of a rough and tumble way in the sense that you were able, because everybody was openly partisan, to take into account the biases of the journalists of the time when you're actually reading this stuff. Kind of not what we're used to. Right, now we have this whole shtick about objective journalism and how there's one truth that is presented to you by CNN. So where did that start? The answer is in the same place as most bad things in the 20th century, the progressive era. The progressive era was all about the professionalization of journalism. So Pulitzer, attempting to professionalize journalism, launches the Columbia School of Journalism in 1912. Again, the idea here is to change how journalism is taught. So like pretty much every other industry in the United States, the way that industry used to work in the United States is you went and you got an apprenticeship in that particular industry. The way that you became a lawyer, for example, you didn't go to law school, you actually went and you apprenticed yourself to a lawyer, and this is how you learned to become a lawyer. The way that you would become a journalist is you would go and work at a newspaper, and you would follow around the guy with the battered hat, and you would just go and report on things, and this is how you learn to do things. Instead, because in 1912, there was this idea that there was an expert class, and the expert class, they were the smartest people. It's very tied into bizarre eugenic notions about human behavior, but it was all about this expert class who if we only left them to be the administrators of our fate, we would all be better off. And that ties into broader commentaries that you can see me talk about elsewhere about progressivism and the idea of elitism and the, and the administrative state and all the rest of that sort of stuff. Well, this ties into that general sort of mindset. So Pulitzer said at the time that the goal was to impart knowledge, not for its own sake, but to be used for the public service. And this leads to, in about 1920, a journalist named Walter Lippmann sort of recasting how journalism is to be done. So even to this point, there was an idea that the journalism had to be professionalized, but everybody understood that journalists had bias. Walter Lippmann was the editor of The New Republic. He was a, a very elitist type of, of human being. He wrote a very famous book in this era in which he discussed how journalism had to be professionalized. He said that we needed to free journalism from error, illusion, and misinterpretation. He called newspapers the Bible of democracy. And he also set up this idea of objective journalism. He said, emphatically, the journalist ought not to be serving a cause, no matter how good. In his professional activity, it is no business of his to care whose ox is gored. As the observer of the signs of change, his value to society depends on the prophetic discrimination with which he selects those signs, as Walter Lippmann overhears. We'll continue with our history of journalism in just one second. First, the time to start planning for your retirement would be like right now. The United States blew through the $31.4 trillion debt ceiling in December. Still, the White House refuses to reduce the spending. We're now $33 trillion in debt, by the way. With that amount of money, you buy the homes of almost everybody in the United States. With the troubling state of the United States economy, it is time to start thinking about your investments and your future, which means you need to consider diversification. It's just a smart thing to do. One of the things you should consider is diversifying into gold with my friends over at Birch Gold. Since 2003, Birch Gold has become a leading dealer of physical precious metals in the United States. Today, with a dynamic team of former wealth managers, financial advisors, and commodity brokers, they continue to help customers diversify their portfolios with gold, silver, platinum, and palladium. 
Birch Gold makes it easy to convert an IRA or 401k into an IRA in precious metals. With your retirement at stake, you want to be confident in the financial services companies that you work with, including who you choose for purchasing physical precious metals. Just text Ben to 989898. Claim your free info kit on gold and then talk to one of their precious metal specialists. Get all your questions answered. Talk to my friends over at Birch Gold. They'll help you throughout the entire process. Text Ben to 989898 today. Protect yourself with gold. So again, you're getting to the professionalization of journalism. And journalists are now a professional class, right? Just like an accountant or just like a lawyer or just like a mathematician. They have a series of duties they perform and those duties have a particular set of steps. Now, not all of that is bad, right? You actually do want journalists to go through things that have become kind of normalized, like, for example, double sourcing. Right? Double sourcing wasn't a thing for a very, very long time in American journalism. You heard from Jim that, that Bill was stripping somebody, he just reported it. Jim says that that's how, now the idea is that you're supposed to go and you're supposed to get a couple of sources to confirm on the record, or at least on background, that a thing is true before you feel sure enough to actually run it. So some of that does come from the professionalization of journalism. Now, again, as I've said before, and as we've shown, the history of journalism, there are a lot of really amazing stories that got broken by journalists without the professionalization of journalism. Because if you just kept lying over and over and over, people, it turns out, stopped trusting you. But it did lead to sort of this this notion that the journalist was not the guy, the high school grad who who sat in a typewriter and wore a battered hat all day, right? The, the way that you watch 1940s films and you watch His Girl Friday and that's what they look like. It wasn't that. It was a guy who went to journalism school and he sat in a school and he learned how to journalism. And that was going to be the way that, that everything worked from, from then on. And this transformed the way that journalism was done. Now journalists were supposed to be objective. Now they were supposed to be above the fray. They weren't supposed to be political. Well, the idea of it in a vacuum isn't terrible. The problem is that human beings do have bias and what they end up doing is they inject their bias back into the journalism and then they claim their objective. And that's lying, right? That's untrue. And you see that that sort of infused all of journalism up till the present day, starting in about 1920, again, with the professionalization of the journalistic class in the same way that the administrative state was supposed to professionalize the business of government and professionalize how journalism was done. All of this is print journalism. In the 1930s, you have the rise of radio. The rise of radio, this is how most people start getting their news. They start listening to the radio every night, and you have a few sort of trusted figures on the radio, as we'll see some of the figures in TV who became very famous, started off on the radio. And all of this is part of the rise of mass media. And we'll chart that to the rise of television, okay? Because the rise of television really changes how people consume the news. Now, again, the model has shifted to quote-unquote objective journalism. At least this is the highfalutin journalism. And when TV comes about, there's an idea that TV is going to be in the public interest. There are only three networks. At this time, there actually was an attempt, if you look at the history of TV, to raise the kind of intellectual level of the American public. Because the rise of television really changes how people consume the news. Now, again, the model has shifted to quote-unquote objective journalism, at least this is the highfalutin journalism, and when TV comes about, there's an idea that TV is going to be in the public interest. There are only three networks. At this time, there actually was an attempt, if you look at the history of TV, to raise the kind of intellectual level of the American public. You would have like full hours of Shakespeare on primetime television at the beginning of TV. People like to mock the 1950s as a time of sort of the dumbing down of American culture, and it's precisely the opposite. If you actually look at how many people were subscribed to the Harvard Classics, by the way, it was like tens of thousands of people, like 50,000 people a year were receiving the Harvard Classics. It was an attempt to actually broaden out the appeal of elite culture to the masses because the elites were running now the biggest medium of mass communication in human history. Okay, so the rise of TV is the next thing that happens in journalism. And you see that the anchor becomes really key. So this is the period of the news anchor. So it used to be the journalists were the people who actually went and reported the things. Now you have the, the rise of the talking heads. 
Right? These are the people you're supposed to trust. We telegraph all of our reporting to this one guy, and this guy, he sits there and he reads you the news. That is the person who you are supposed to establish a relationship with. And this is people like Huntley Brinkley, this is Chet Huntley and David Brinkley beginning in 1956, or people like Edward R. Murrow, who began live radio broadcasts for CBS during World War II, but launches See It Now in 1951, and who mostly was famous, he, he was a man of the left. Edward R. Murrow actually worked to get the Frankfurt School theoreticians into the United States during the 1930s and 40s, actually. He, he really was a person who left. He was most famous for going after Senator Joseph McCarthy. He had these very famous back and forth with Joseph McCarthy. He had McCarthy on his show. McCarthy called him a communist. It was sort of a, a career maker, and it's the thing people remember most about Edward Murrow. Uh, and then you have Walter Cronkite, right, same period. Cronkite began anchoring the CBS Evening News in 1962, and he was considered the most trusted man in America. Now, again, he wasn't a reporter per se. He was the guy who read you the news. But because TV is about whichever face appears before you, you're very often not even writing your own stuff. So maybe the most famous thing that he ever did on TV, his response to the Tet Offensive, was not actually written by him. It was written by one of his writers. But it may have turned the course of the entire Vietnam War. After the Tet Offensive happened, he went on TV that night, and Walter Cronkite was a man of the left, and he said this. But it is increasingly clear to this reporter that the only rational way out then will be to negotiate, not as victors, but as an honorable people who lived up to their pledge to defend democracy and did the best they could. The fact of the matter is that Walter Cronkite, again, being a person of the left, but projecting himself as an objective journalist was able to do way more damage in the American public debate than if he had been running some newspaper called the Arkansas Socialist and he had said that sort of thing. People would have been like, oh yeah, that because he didn't like the war, got it. But because he was the face of TV and we had trusted people on TV, we were all supposed to respect that as objective journalism. Also during this era, something else happens. You see that the, the people on the news, the talking heads are very, very trusted. You also see the rise of these star journalists. The star Now this is sort of a reversion to type because again, many of the muckrakers were in fact very famous. Upton Sinclair actually tried to run for, for governor of California at one point. But the rise of star journalists again, you'd be remiss if you didn't mention here Woodward and Bernstein and the breaking of Watergate. This changed the way the journalists also thought about themselves. They were still using the ideas of Lippmann, which was you have to be an objective journalist, but you could now be a star. And the way that you were a star is you challenge power, and you particularly challenge power from the people you don't like. And that became a big thing. This is why nowadays the way that you win a Pulitzer is by attacking Donald Trump, reporting on Russiagate nonstop, even if there's nothing that you just dig and dig and dig, and then you win a Pulitzer. This is all the legacy of Woodward and Bernstein. It gets you a slot on CNN, gets you a slot on MSNBC. That's the real journalism. Back to television. During the 1980s, you see, again, more of these anchor types who are supposed to be trustworthy. And again, we're supposed to pretend that they are objective in some serious way. They're not objective, as it turns out, in pretty much any serious way. We have Sam Donaldson over at ABC News, for example, or you have Dan Rather over at CBS. Both of those guys are really, really to the left. And Dan Rather became the CBS Evening News anchor in 1981. Donaldson had started doing primetime live with Diane Sawyer in, in 1989. Rather was, along with Tom Brokaw and Peter Jennings, kind of the faces of the news. Right, so in the early 1990s, when I was growing up, these were the people who people watched on TV to get their news. Now, it turns out all three of them were wildly to the left. All three of them, like, very, very much to the left. Particularly, obviously, Dan Rather, who later would blow up his entire career in 2004 by running with a story that was completely false about George W. Bush going AWOL from the Air National Guard. Right, it was a completely made-up letter, and it led to the end of his career. Now he's back, and he's still doing stuff. I remember one time, actually, I was at an event, and Sam Donaldson was there. 
I think this is the 2012 Republican National Convention, and Sam Donaldson was covering it for ABC News Radio. And at the time, he was doing a political commentary show for ABC News Radio. And I, I went up to him and I said, I don't understand, you're, you're overtly political now. When you were covering the news, did you have the same ideas? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, then weren't you being dishonest with the audience, projecting objectivity when obviously it was influencing how you were covering the news? And he said, what, do you think you're better than I am? And I said, well, I mean, kind of. Like, I'm, <laughs> like, I'm, I'm honest about my own biases. You're totally not honest about your own biases. Okay, but that was the model of objective journalism. All this shatters with the rise of the internet. The rise of internet news truly begins with Matt Drudge. Drudge is the father of internet newsmaking. So I'm lucky enough to have been very close friends with, with Andrew Breitbart, who worked with Matt Drudge, like right from the inception of, of the Drudge Report. And Drudge was an old style muckraker. And he, and he considered himself that. He was a guy who had politics, and also he was interested in getting a story, and he was politically driven, and he was willing to print stuff, and he was willing to go with it. And so he's the first person who scoops the Lewinsky scandal, right? And, and suddenly the Drudge Report is like the biggest thing on planet Earth. He ends up being sued by Sidney Blumenthal and the Clinton administration and all of this sort of stuff. But he's completely broken the stranglehold of the mainstream media because what Drudge really did is he showed that there was a tacit bargain between members of the mainstream legacy news and members of the Democratic Party. And Drudge broke it. He said, you guys were willing to bury the story. You've known about this for a long time. You guys were taking your sweet time about printing this. You were gonna massage it and play it in a certain way. I'm just gonna spill it right out there in the public. The media couldn't deal with it, and they still can't deal with it. Because what this did, by opening up an industry of newsmaking to everyone, is that acts of journalism now went front and center. It used to be being a journalist was the thing you had to be. Drudge went back to acts of journalism make you a journalist. Right? What makes you a journalist, as my friend Andrew Breitbart used to say, is you have a cell phone and you happen to be on scene when anything happens. You are now a journalist. What he meant was acts of journalism can happen anywhere. And you don't have to be an apolitical, objectively trained Columbia School of Journalism fellow in order for you to be a journalist or for you to do acts of journalism. And so Matt Drudge driving enormous amounts of traffic to the to the internet. People start getting their news from the internet. The internet is faster than TV. It's more immediate than TV. And you don't have to have it read to you by some talking head like Dan Rather, who ain't that smart anyway. Right? And so all of a sudden, there's just this extraordinary explosion of news sites across the web, right? On the left, on the right. Places like Slate and Salon were kind of the first movers in the space on the left. And then you had Drudge Report and you had Hot Air. You had, you had all of these kind of right-wing sites. There was an explosion of almost old-style American journalism. You're, you're suddenly back in the early 1800s when it was the, the Democrat versus the Republican, right? When, when all of the papers had their partisan viewpoints. And you had wandering journalists who were going out and doing acts of wandering journalism. And people like James O'Keefe breaking stories about Acorn that were actually changing the nature of how government was done. So that, that was, for a while, it was kind of like, let a thousand flowers bloom. And it was kind of great. And then came a point when it seemed like it was going to get even better. Okay, so this is the rise of social media really around 2006. So for those who remember this, the early internet iteration of news is that you had a list of bookmarks on the side of your computer. And when you opened up your browser, usually Internet Explorer, you would click on all of your bookmarks and it would load these various pages one by one, right? That's what it would do. Social media happens in 2006. Facebook launches to the general public in 2006. Twitter launches to the general public in 2006. And when this happens, it allows people to basically get rid of the bookmarks. You no longer use your bookmarks. Why? Well, you just go to Facebook, and Facebook will algorithmically show you all the things that you want to see, all the various sites, headline by headline. Twitter will do the same thing. You can follow the people that you like. And suddenly, the availability of internet news is astonishing. Right? Sites like The Daily Wire, we can start up, and we can be enormous inside of a year, two years, because suddenly, people can see us. Right? Whereas before, even with the rise of Drudge, you had to specifically seek out Matt Drudge. You had to know the name of the site. Or you had to specifically seek out The Daily Wire. No longer. Now you go to Facebook, 
And Facebook feeds you our site. And if you keep clicking on our site, Facebook keeps feeding you our site. And so you can have sites that start up and become immediate successes. And not only that, the number of eyeballs that are on Facebook or on Twitter are so much greater than the number of eyeballs that you would get just by typing in Drudge Report or the number of people who even know the name of my publication, right? That suddenly you can have hundreds of millions of people visiting sites that did not exist two years ago. And this is all considered, you know, kind of a good thing, right? I mean, if you, if you, if you listen to Mark Zuckerberg in the early days of Facebook, he said, this is great, let a thousand flowers bloom, right? We want more free speech, not less free speech. We want to make sure that everybody's opinion is heard. More news is good. Then came 2016. And when Donald Trump won in 2016, it broke everything. And the reason it broke everything is because suddenly the legacy media, having realized over the course of the past several years they were losing money, that they had a serious problem because they were losing money, right? All the objective journalismers who were not really objective were getting outpaced by the Matt Drudges of the world or by the Breitbarts of the world or by the Daily Wires of the world. When they realized that, they realized they had a golden opportunity. 2016, when Trump wins, the entire journalistic establishment sides with the Democrats, and they start pressuring social media. And they say, there's no way Donald Trump, Donald Trump is a fascist, he's Hitlerian, there's no way he can have won. There's no way he can have won. The only way he could have won is if Facebook and Twitter and all of these social media sites somehow rigged the game. It's because they rigged the game. That's, that's how Donald Trump won. So what we need them to do is we need them to crack down on all of our competitors. All of our competitors must be silenced. We need to make sure that we change the algorithms. We can't let misinformation and disinformation be the, the modes of information that people get. We can't let people see The Daily Wire or Breitbart or Daily Caller alongside The New York Times. The New York Times is trustworthy. We're objective journalismers. We went to Columbia Journalism School, even though we promote Nicole Hannah-Jones. Right? That, that, that's what we are. And these people, they, they can't be allowed to, to flourish. If they're allowed to flourish, people like Donald Trump are going to win. And Facebook and Twitter, under threat of legislation from Democrats in the Senate, they decided, okay, I guess, I guess so. And so they started, to, they started to shut down the practice of journalism that was not from the approved media sources, from the fake, objective, legacy media sources. And that's sort of where we are today. The only thing I would add here is that Elon Musk has broken that open in Twitter, right? But Elon Musk has now shown the kind of combination of, of factors that led to the crackdown on information that happened in 2020, when the Hunter Biden story, for example, was completely scuttled by social media. Elon Musk has demonstrated the hand-in-glove relationship between legacy media and Democrats and social media tech bros. And so that, that is sort of where we stand right now. We'll get to more on this in just one second. First, Pure Talk believes in American values and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So, I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving. 